Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I am Jamie Mize. Today is the sixth and final episode of our second season, History's Lessons. This season explored topics that our students said they wanted to know more about after taking our classes. Our final episode explores the Aztecs. To learn more about the Aztecs, who they were, what they did, and if we even need to be speaking about this civilization in the past tense, I spoke with Dr. Chris Woolley. Dr. Woolley is an associate professor of Latin American history at UNCP. All right, there we go. Very good. Very good. Um, Coke or Pepsi? Uh, Coke, Diet Coke. <laughs> good man. Good man. Yeah. All right. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. Is this um, something we're taking, we're taking a poll on? <laughs> well, it's just, it, it has become a bit of a thing with mm. the uh, introductory conversations. I mean, Dr. Harper and I are on the same page and it looks like you're a right thinking individual as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's just Dr. Johnson that we really have to worry about who seems to think that the answer to that question is Pepsi. Well, maybe we could stage an intervention one of these days. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Well, Dr. Willie, thank you so much for joining me today. We are going to talk about the Aztecs. So first things first, should I ask you who were or should I ask you who are the Aztecs? Well, uh, thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I'm looking forward to it. And that's actually a very good question. The truth is there never have been people who called themselves Aztecs. It's a very imprecise and problematic term. Now, scholars have known this and talked about it for quite some time, but publishers love the term. If you call a book the Mexica Tenochka Triplica Alliance, no one's, you know, who's going to read that besides me? But uh, Aztecs, now that sells books. It's a term that's recognized by the public, but it's really imprecise for a number of reasons. And as always, to explain those reasons, we have to look to history. So uh, let me briefly talk about the term as it relates to the people we're, we're discussing today. Perfect. So- The term is sometimes used to describe the political state that developed uh, really from the 14th century in central Mexico, uh, which was, in fact, not a unified state. It was an allied state of of three main parts. And sometimes it's meant to describe the people who made up that state. Now, those people are what we call Nahuatl, speakers of the Nahuatl language. Uh, And those people are very much still around. There's between a million and a half and two million speakers in central Mexico, um, there's a diaspora all over the place, including right here in North Carolina. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those people, in some ways, are the descendants of the people I'm going to talk about. Now, if we want to go back in time, the people that are often described as Aztecs have a history in the north of Mexico, or possibly even the southwestern part of what is today the United States. Um, there's a migration history that many of the accounts talk about, and we know that this migration was real. And one of the ways we know this is that the Nahuatl language is part of what we call the Uto-Aztecan language family. Uh, think, you know, Utah, uh, Uto-Aztecan. Mm-hmm. And that is mostly spoken in the far northern parts of Mexico and the American Southwest. The accounts we have link their origins to a place called Chicomostac, place of the seven caves. And there's a very long history and a lot of different sources that describe this period of migration. The people of the northern Mexico once had a sedentary, uh, I'm sorry, a nomadic history. They moved around a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's something that somewhat ironically, the later uh, people who made up the Aztecs would kind of look down upon, but also kind of be proud of because it was part of their past. It was part of their their heritage. What are they hunting? 
Sorry, I didn't mean oh, to interrupt your flow, oh, though, absolutely. but what are, what are they hunting? Well, all kinds of things, deer and rabbits and squirrels. Um, they moved around to take advantage of the different maguey and cacti that, okay. that grow in northern Mexico. So, and as people did for, for a long time after this. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, the word they used to describe these was the chichimeca, or at least that's the Spanish version of it. Uh, there's debates about what that actually means, but it was probably a pejorative uh, used to describe the nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples of the north. Now, what we do know is that when these people migrated south, they came into contact with a state known as the Toltec Empire, which is to the north of what is today Mexico City. And in that process, they absorbed a lot of the urban artificing characteristics of the of the Toltecs. Um, they sort of learned a bit about not just learned how to do things, but developed a value for city building and, and architecture and those kinds of things. And then they moved on south. Now, among these Nahuas were many different ethnic groups. They shared a common language, but not a common identity. And the last of these people to arrive in what is what we call the basin of Mexico, which is where Mexico City sits today, mm-hmm. uh, called themselves the Mexitin or the Mexica. And when they showed up, they were they were latecomers. Uh, they were um, seen as sort of outsiders, seen as rustic compared to the people who had already taken up sedentary life there. And they really had nowhere to go. And so they looked for protection. They, for example, served as uh, mercenaries under uh, people called the Kulwas. But at the, at the time, Central Mexico was dominated by people called uh, the Tepanecs, who had a capital at a place called Atzcalpozalco. Um, there won't be a test on this, but... <laughs> <laughs> and, and other people called the Akolwas, who are the capital at Texcoco. Now, I'll sort of condense some history here. There's, there's a lot going on, dynastic politics and all that stuff. And I know you love English history, so you must love dynastic politics. <laughs> um, so and that's going on as well. But the long and the short of it is they got expelled from uh, by the Kulwas, allegedly because they, well, let's say there was a misunderstanding about a daughter who was donated to them by the lord of that of that uh, city state uh, he kind of may have meant marriage and they took it to mean sacrifice and oh. misunderstandings lead to bad outcomes and in any case uh, they were yeah. expelled and, yeah as, as you can probably uh, imagine and they ended up at the only place that was left this, this swampy island in the middle of the ancient lake system most of which is gone today um although lake Xochimilco is still there and you know, it's it's an underdog story. These were people who were hated by everybody who lived on a swampy island in the middle of a lake. And yet within a century, they built the largest empire in Mesoamerica's history, uh, which is very, very impressive. So those are the origins. Uh, now, we, if you want, we can talk about how they built their empire and who they were and all that other stuff. But uh, that's where they come from. Now, the Mexica were became eventually by the 1420s, the dominant partner of a three-part alliance, which was basically a uh, intended to overthrow the power of those Tepanecs. And this was between three different city-states. I can explain that term here in a minute and what it, well, in some more specific vocabulary, but uh, that would have been Mexica, whose capital was called Tenochtitlan. Then also with uh, one of the subject states of the Tepanecs called Tlacopan and also Texcoco, leadership of people like Itzcoat of the Mexica and also uh, Nezahualcoyo, as he was known, uh, of uh, Texcoco, who's you know, was a really impressive guy. He was a poet. He was an architect, um, political strategist, all of those things. And, and in this way, they overthrew the power of the Tepanecs and they rose to power as a three-part alliance of which, as far as we can tell, it seems the Mexica were the dominant partner from very early on in that alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, but they always operated as semi three allied, but semi-independent parts. Okay. So kind of autonomous. 
they weren't involved in each other's day-to-day political affairs. Yes, that, that's correct. And they even had different sort of spheres of influence in areas they conquered. Uh, they shared tribute with, you know, the Mexica getting the lion's share and Tlacopan got, got the least. But um, they, they clearly had their own sort of jurisdictions and their own um, territories in which they operated. I have a question that may be a stupid one. Those but... are my favorite questions. <laughs> so if these people are so disliked by everyone, why do they not just keep moving? Why do they not kind of fall back on this previous migratory nature? Why do they decide to kind of dig in, I guess, and become a more sedentary people? And that's not a stupid question at all. That's an excellent question. <laughs> and it's one of those things where we're going to have to speculate. You know, no one ever wrote this down. Um, but No, really? They- I, I know, I know. They, they were insensitive to the needs of historians, I call it. But, um, you know, they, they had taken up a great deal of respect for urbanism and for state level societies. And clearly they had a knack for it. Mm. Um, and also Central Mexico is very fertile. It's a really good place to be. If you've ever been there, it's uh, the climate I is have. good. I've been there with yeah, you, yeah, actually. Well, an airport, Briefly. I guess. Uh, yeah. the, oh, gosh. Don't, don't get me started on the airport. There's a whole political thing surrounding that. But that's a different, <laughs> that's a different podcast. But um, <laughs> but you know, the climate is excellent. It's a wet, dry climate. It's in the 70s during the day. It doesn't freeze too often. Uh, the soil is volcanic and very fertile. There's lakes. They're really. It's a really good place to be. Um, so... They kind of that's where they set up. Now, according to their own legends, it was because their their chief war god, Huitzilopochtli, the hummingbird god, had taken the form of a golden eagle and landed upon a cactus with a rattlesnake in his talons. And that was the symbol of uh, it was time to set down their roots, um, depending on which sources you use, use. This happened around 1325. Um, mm. But that was their story. That's how that's how they remembered it. OK. And so these three different polities that are uniting together. You you mentioned the word kind of, uh, you mentioned a word a minute ago. Did you call them nation states? I called them city states. City states, it, that's it. Yeah, I was if, like, yeah, I'm nation state oh, is not right, but I knew it was something state. Yeah. <laughs> city state. So are all three of these city states then? They were, but I guess now is the time where we go to the footnote and I explain what I mean. That'd be great. <laughs> Okay, so technically each one was what was called an altepet, plural altepeme. And it seems that these were sort of composite elements of a smaller sort of extended kinship groups, or, or the Spanish called them barrios, but they were called, uh, we used to think they were called calpoli, but probably they were called plasilicali. And these were groups that had a particular ecological function. You know, if they were near forests, they they were experts in forestry. If they're near mm-hmm. the waters, they were expert mm-hmm. fishermen. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have joined together to form these larger polities. We don't know exactly why they were called Altepe, the water mountain. But uh, I, I would argue that it had to do with, you know, water and mountains are very important in Mesoamerican, uh, you know, religion and, and, and sort of culture. It, it encompasses everything you need to live, right, from the lakes up to the mountains, right? Yeah. And, and that's kind of what they were, is these different parts were kind of modular. They predated uh, the Altepeme, as far as we can tell. And sometimes they shifted from one to the other. And sometimes there was a, a Tlaxila Kali that was actually in the territory of one Altepet, but belonged to another. So um, there, there, there's a lot of complexity here. And some of them were complex. There were actually multiple Altepeme that then conglomerated into larger ones. Tenochtitlan was one of these. Um, mm-hmm. So was Texcoco. So it's complicated. But the Spanish never understand this because they take the language from Spain and, and they apply it to this. And they see cities and, and out and sort of suburbs, what they call Cabeceros and Sujetos, no jurisdictional towns and those that were under their their influence. But um, that that doesn't apply. It's a different idea of, of organization. But, okay. And, and, and a footnote. That's what I mean by city states. But, but they were no. um, 
and, and each one I should also add had a had a king called the the speaker, the Tlatawani, or uh-huh. in the case of the the Mashika, the Way Tlatawani, the great speaker, you know, who oh, was the Lord of Lords. Um, absolutely, the great speaker. Yes. Yeah, and uh, they sort of negotiated rulership among themselves. It seems sometimes they rotated from one uh, constituent part to another. Okay, so once they decide to to settle in, you mentioned that one of the reasons why they do this is because the area is very fertile. So what what are they what are they growing? Yeah. Okay. So lots of good stuff. Mm-hmm. So obviously the, uh, the staple crop of Mesoamerica is corn or mm-hmm. maize. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and this won't be very good for the podcasting format, but if you go back to that Chico Mostoc, the, uh, you know, the, the seven caves where they originally originated in, in a document called the, the Anales de Quatin Chan, there's a wonderful color of, depiction of Chico Mostoc in which they, it's made to look like a womb and it's sort of being impregnated by a priest with a corn on it. And it shows you how corn is seen sort of as like the, the source of life in a manner of speaking. Yeah. Um, so they, they grew corn, which was the staple, which, de- which mm-hmm. was developed by people in, in uh, Mesoamerica. It evolved from a native grass called teosinte. Um, they grew it in a polycropping method where unlike, you know, the monocropping we used to see driving around here, where it's just sort of corn as far as the eye can see, that would have been grown with squash um, and also with beans, which are um, nitrogen fixing. They put nitrogen back in the soil so it doesn't get mm-hmm. exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the staple. They, they called it the milpa. Mm-hmm. Around the lakes, they developed a form of a raised bed agriculture called chinampas, which were, uh, the Spanish called them floating gardens because that's what they look like, but they, they were raised planter beds. Uh, oh, wow. One of the most productive pre-modern systems in the world. They were really, really productive. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also ate, oh, I'm sorry. I was just saying this very interesting because I've heard about the the floating gardens, but I was never really sure exactly what that meant. So they were just raised beds. Well, they I were, said just raised beds. I mean, yeah. that's amazing. But right, right, exactly. Um, but th- but they were even more sort of uh, useful than appears when you first think about them because I mean, you got the nutrients circulating in the, in the lakes, um, uh-huh. which which you should mention were originally brackish. You couldn't really grow there, and uh, it was actually Nezawalkoyol Toshkoko who took the initiative. But they actually created a system of levees and dikes that separated out the salt water from the fresh water so they could do this. Oh, wow. And, uh, and they built them along the shores there. And also like at night, because it freezes sometimes in central Mexico, but the water will radiate out the heat, which prevents against freezes. Uh, really quite an ingenious system. Oh, wow. That is, that is very ingenious. So these three city states or polities, whichever is the correct way to kind of think about them, yeah. do they remain happily allied or do things change well uh for a time uh they, they do um it's hard to say exactly how happy they were obviously they were power struggles, <laughs> but they were also you know they were bound by a lot of marital alliances and those kinds of things sure so, yeah are these uh sorry that just made a question pop in my mind are these matrilineal or patrilineal people uh, the Aztecs, mm-hmm. generally patrilineal, but the thing is that power tended to pass from brother to brother a lot of the time, mm-hmm. rather than father to son. Hmm. Uh, and in some of the smaller states, women did hold power rarely, um, but among the big states, it was men who held power. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you again. No, good. I was hoping gender would be one of the things we touch on. <sighs> well, that just popped in my head when you mentioned, you know, people getting married to make political alliances intimate, thereby solidifying those bonds. So makes sense right. to me. Yeah. And there's also a danger in that because it means you have potential, there are potential heirs all over the place. All over the place. Okay. Brother to brother. That's interesting because, um, 
you know, I uh, study the history of people in the Native South, and mm. it, it it wasn't, I mean, it was pretty common for political power to pass brother to brother, but that was mm-hmm. because they were a matrilineal people. So, mm-hmm. well, there's a, there's a lot of research on gender, and there's there's some really interesting things uh, going on. Um, I, I suspect that things were moving in the direction of becoming a bit more patriarchal uh, mm. with the rise of the state and everything. Traditionally, we talk about what they call gender complementarity, yeah, um, yeah. which is that that wasn't that men were considered to have more important roles, mm-hmm. but that the, the spheres of men and women were different, uh, seen as being two two sort of halves of a necessary necessary whole. And there were certain equivalencies, you know, um, for example, the best, you know, men were raised to be warriors. Um, That was the number one thing. And uh, dying in battle was seen as the best death, whereas a best death for a woman was dying in childbirth. Childbirth, Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of stuff. Now, there there is some aspects of patriarchy that seems to come up. For example, women who were selected for sacrificial and for sacrifice, were subjected to all kinds of humiliation that men were not, and those kinds of things. Um, scholars generally believe that women were better off before the Spanish came, but weird. <laughs> yeah, uh, not surprising. <laughs> no, not women, surprising all, but... women were better off before colonialism. No, couldn't yeah. possibly be. <laughs> yeah, a shocking finding, but. Um, but I, I wouldn't take that to mean that things were necessarily entirely egalitarian either. Certainly by the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but by the time that the Spanish enter the picture, they're not really talking about all of these different myriad of people, right? They really are kind of focused on this group that we now call the Aztecs. Is that correct? Uh, yes. And of course, it, they, they did eventually begin to realize some of these political and ethnic distinctions, but they weren't aware of them at first. Okay. Okay. So had, had there been greater political unification or is it, is it just that, you know, the group that the Spanish refer to as the Aztecs, is it just that now they are so dominant that like they're the, the main kid on the block? I mean, they were dominant enough that people very far away knew about them. Um, certainly, you know, this Cortez, knew from shortly after you know founding Veracruz in 1519 that there was some kind of large imperial state in the interior, something he desperately wanted to get his hands on. So, I mean, they, they were well known and they weren't, of course, necessarily liked I mean, what empire is liked by all of its subjects. I mean, they were, right. uh, they did what empires do. They extracted wealth and they brought it to this, the center and they made impositions and they made war. And you know, there were plenty of people who didn't like them. Um, one of the ways that the Spaniards became aware of these political divisions and rivalries was because a lot of different groups were pretty happy to see uh, somebody come who might threaten their traditional enemies. So, you know, the thing we call the conquest was really, uh, from another perspective, a war among different peoples. They, they don't remember it as the conquest. They remember it as wars against their traditional allies with these weird new, these new people fighting alongside them. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't just the Spanish coming in and toppling everything on their own. They had tens of thousands of allies that fought alongside them and, and were happy to do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what what then was kind of the immediate history then? Can you kind of set the stage for us on what the geopolitical situation is that the Spanish then enter into? Yeah. So and, and this is important because it partially explains what happens once the, the Spanish arrive. OK. Uh, now, so the the way Tlatawani was, uh, you know, Moctezuma Chocodiotzin, Moctezuma II. Um, he had brought the empire to the largest state it had been up to that point. Um, the state was growing. Tenochtitlan was a beautiful city. Uh, it was, a, you know, what you'd expect from a colonial center. It, it had foliage from throughout the empire. It had luxury goods. Moctezuma had a zoo. Um, he had all kinds of 
things that could show off his wealth and his power. But certainly there was discontent um, going on. I mean, this is to be expected of any kind of imperial situation. And he had a very complicated task before him because maintaining this empire, you know, it wasn't really just built, uh, uh, you know, at the end of a end of a sword or sort of these technically these large wooden clubs they used with obsidian and laid on them. But mm. it wasn't just violence and the threat of it that held this empire together. It was these alliances and it was, you know, services provided by the empire, the infrastructure, and they built, uh, you know, storage houses that they let people have access to and other things like that. But he knew that there were people potentially plotting against him all the time because that happened a lot. People were murdered and they were overthrown by other lineages. And, you know, my supposition is that when the Spanish arrived, he was more concerned with those with that situation than these new people. You know, there's a lot of different takes in the indigenous sources on what kind of guy Moctezuma was, depending on the perspective of who wrote it. Um, hmm. We won't know exactly what he was thinking, but he must have been thinking an awful lot. Okay. So how do the Spanish then get get to them? What sort of route are they taking and how are they utilizing the Aztecs' enemies along the way? Yeah. So the first thing we have to remember is that they were operating off the precedent of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. that, you know, with Columbus in 1492 – and subsequently, Still the ocean blue. Yeah, so we'll, one, <laughs> one of the few dates my students seem to know <laughs> already. Um, but, uh, you know, by the early 1502, the Spanish is trying to, you know, the early phase of, in the Caribbean is just uh, people just operating on their own, committing all kinds of atrocities for, uh, yeah. for their own benefit. And the crown wanted a more organized and sort of limited form of exploitation. Like, no doubt the crown wanted to subject people and extract tribute and all that, but they didn't want them exterminated. They want them productively, you know, making wealth and transferring it back to Spain. So there was an attempt to sort of regularize things there. Um, there's a system whereby a, a, an adelantado or sort of a, you know, a conqueror would lead into new areas and they would be followed and they would conquer, settle, and then gradually implement uh what was what we call the encomienda system their repartimiento was called at first but a form of sort of uh semi-feudal tribute payments uh sometimes labor to to a spaniard so all, all of that is going on the, the crown in you know 1512 is trying to regularize and limit the exploitation and bring in more government uh, and all that kinds of stuff now cortez himself wasn't really supposed to go to mexico i should say um the, the governor of cuba diego velasquez had basically fired him from the job because he was a little too ambitious, which turns out to be true, right? And so he went on his own. So Cortez is already in a position where he's either going to succeed and get the king to pardon him, or he's going to be, you know, uh, hanging from a rope. And he's got that in mind. And that's important. And, and and on that, one of the, the first thing they do when they land, uh, well, I should mention, they go to Yucatan where they pick up a, a, a Spaniard who had been living among the Maya and spoke uh, Yucatec Maya. Okay. Uh, and and uh, then move on to sort of the the Gulf Coast, where they uh, encounter uh, traders from whom they get the woman known as Malintzin, or sometimes called La Malinche. Doña Marina is what the Spaniards baptized her as. And she becomes a very important part of the story. Uh, in some of the accounts, she's front and center. Um, but but essentially, what they're as they move, so they found Ver- the city of Veracruz, uh, right? The uh, Via Rica de la Veracruz, the rich town of the True Cross. And they do that because that created jurisdiction, which they could then, you know, Oh, Cortez, won't you please take us in right. you know, uh, and, and do this great thing? But they had Malin Sin uh, with her. Now, we don't know her birth name. Um, this is something I, I see all the time. And people think they know what her name was. We, we don't know. Uh, and frustrating because we probably know more about her than we do any woman who lived in the Americas before you know, before the arrival of Europeans. And we don't know right. her name. Right? And, uh, but Malin Sin was Marina, pronounced in 
Nahuatl, there's, there's no uh, R sound, so it becomes an L. And then the Zine is an honorific. So she was probably originally of the noble class and had been sold into slavery at some point for unknown reasons, but that did happen. Right. But the point is that she spoke Nahuatl and Maya, Yucatec Maya, and they had a, a translator for Maya so they could communicate in that way. And so they went up the mountains and they started seeing cities and temples and all that stuff. And uh, their first major ally was uh, the Tlaxcalans, the, which was the traditional enemy of the Mexica that had never been conquered. And they fought for a while and it was kind of a draw, but they eventually agreed that the enemy, my enemy is my friend. And they allied with the Spaniards, uh, which for them turned out to be potentially a good thing because Tlaxcala enjoyed special privileges from Spain uh, for essentially the entire colonial period. Oh. So, you know. And it's easy to say, oh, why would they, you know, students will say things like, well, why yeah. would they fight against their own people? They weren't their own people. Right. 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 The Aztecs weren't Malinsin's people. They weren't, they were the Tlaxcalans' enemies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the idea that people would come and help you destroy your enemies is like, that's a win-win, at least on paper. Um, yep. so, and from there, they, you know, the larger the army gets, the more attractive it is to join them because you want to be on the winning side of things. Yeah. There was an uh, important massacre at Cholula. It's the Tlaxcalans participated in with Spanish support. Uh, again, those old, uh, old uh, you know, animosities are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually they went up the mountains and they looked down into the basin of Mexico and they saw uh, the most amazing city they'd ever seen. Tenochtitlan, like a, you know, like a beehive with canoes coming and going a very, you know, the temples shining white covered in lime. Uh, spotless city. Um, cleanliness was very, very important to uh, to Nawaz, uh, much less so to the Spaniards. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. right. I have to imagine because yeah, for them, dirt was a form, was a disordering force. It had cosmic significance. So cleanliness was important to your body. Oh, you know, really? f- w- women swept all the time to keep the Tlazoli, it was called, but a polluting force of dirt and otherwise Spaniards coming in covered in dirt and blood and who knows what else, you know, (laughs) must have seen because, you know, and Kalinas was was associated with moral character, too. And in that case, well, okay, that that panned out, right? (laughs) Turned out the Spaniards weren't all that moral. So on so many counts, are they making are they making comparisons to well, what are they making comparisons to? So Cortez and others, are they Mm -hmm. in terms of like when they're trying to describe this city Mm -hmm. and this civilization, what are what sort of comparisons are they making? So obviously, yeah, so they they had to operate from the framework. You know, both sides had their own frameworks for describing new things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who was a foot soldier with Cortez, who later in life life from Guatemala, Antigua, actually, where I just was, um, wrote the true history of the conquest of Mexico. (laughs) I know, I know. what he called the true history of the Congress in Mexico, which was not true. It was his, uh, he was protecting his encomienda and his own lineage and his own reasons for writing it. Um, but he compares it to you know, Venice, which was the most obvious example, a city on the water mm, sure. built on commerce canoes. Um, so that was mm-hmm, the, the closest comparison they had. Uh, it was the biggest city that probably any of them had ever seen. It was bigger than Seville, um, bigger than most cities, except for maybe, maybe Paris and Rome, maybe um, cities in China for sure. But other than that, there weren't many cities in the world larger than Tenochtitlan. And uh, you know, the other thing that they, they used the vocabulary of uh, the Reconquest era. Uh, they called the temples mosques. Ah, right? uh, okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, there's some interesting, a lot of linguistic research on how people use their vocabulary to describe new things. And it goes both ways. One of my favorite ones is now was to describe sheep because they never used, seen a sheep before. So they use the word for cotton. I think that's cute. Well, yeah. <laughs> you can see where they're going with that. I, that makes it, sense. It makes sense. <laughs> makes sense to me. What's the population when Cortez so, and all of them arrive? We don't know. A few hundred, 500 Spaniards, something like that, probably tens of thousands of allies. 
Um, Cortez in his letters tries to downplay the allies. He, he wants to make it seem like oh, he's 12 sure. tall and shoots fire yeah. out of his eyes, you know? So, yeah. and he only, he barely mentions Marlene scene at all, even though she's front and center in the Tlaxcalan Colin accounts, you know? Um, mm-hmm. he, I think he mentions her like one time as this Indian woman that somebody gave to me. And that's it. That's like all he says about her because, you know, he doesn't want to seem like there's an indigenous woman running the show here. Um, no. not that she was running the show. I mean, she was a slave essentially, but, but she had a lot of power and influence and she was very important. And he tried to downplay that. So, um, I keep trying so, to tell my students that knowledge is power. I don't know how many of them are, are listening and believe me, but it should be. It should. It should. Okay. You know, on, on the other side, oh, I'm sorry. In terms of the population question, yeah, um, a lot of demographic research on how many people lived in central Mexico, it's uh-huh. all kind of, you know, using, you know, uh, various census records and things, but Tennessee Lawn, 100, 200,000 people, maybe something yeah. like that. Um, Central Mexico itself was many, many millions. Uh, you know, I think classic numbers say over 25 million. That might be a bit high, but many millions of people. It was, it was a very densely populated area. Yeah. I was thinking that the city itself was, was urban. It was an urban space, right? It was, yes. So what, what happens then when Cortez arrives? Well, uh, you know, Moctezuma up to this point has tried to do what he can to keep them away. He sent them treasures. We sent people to try to, you know, intervene, but, None of it worked. And there's these different historical graphical traditions, because how do we explain the fact that they let Cortez on one of the causeways to the city? Moctezuma and Cortez met, and Cortez tried to give him a bear hug, which you don't do. You don't bear hug the emperor. That's not good. Mm. So almost got to get himself into trouble there. But he does, and he invites him into the city, and he shows him around. Uh, must have been quite a sight. I mean, if I can go back in time and see one thing, it would be Tenochtitlan. Uh, that yeah. is what I would like to see. Um, it would have been uh, unlike any place in the world, I think. Um, but he shows him around. He shows him his his zoo and his his birds, the golden eagle. You know, there's still a golden eagle in Chapultepec Forest today, uh, and there's a zoo there. Um, mm-hmm. Shows him his kept snakes, all different kinds of snakes in pots, and uh, you know they had all the houses and the temples and all that stuff. Well, it's flexing on some level, right? Like sure. I, I rule all of this. Who are you? Mm-hmm. Right? My, my my guests here. But there's but the question is why did he why did he do this, right? Now, one of the, the historiographical traditions that develops after the conquest is the idea of Moctezuma, the coward. He was a coward. He, he wasn't. You, you don't rise to the level of Huaytotawani and rule for as long as he did being a coward. That, that's right. not what's happening. Right. You know, there's the one of the myths that comes out of, uh, it is an indigenous language source, but it's also a myth. I can talk about that later from the Florentine Codex, is the idea that they thought the Spaniards were a god, maybe a Quetzalcoatl. You know, and that, that's, all, that's all nonsense. Quetzalcoatl was not a particularly important god to them. Um, yeah. it's, no one thought the Spaniards were deities. They, you know, right. they died when you whacked them in the neck with a sword like anyone else, you know. Yeah. Um, but they do use the word for God to describe them. But it, the word can mean God impersonators, can mean people with power. It can mean a lot of different things other than an actual God. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he, he invites him into the city. I like to sort of think of this as he's kind of in, I mean, he's in a really difficult situation. Okay. Um, and looking back on it, it's, it, turned out to be, I think, a no-win situation. And, and and I say that because, remember, he's balancing all of these alliances and people are looking at him to see what he does. Now, had he ordered the Spaniards to be exterminated, right? Uh, could he have done that? Maybe, potentially, right? But it wouldn't have been easy. And the mm-hmm. fact that it couldn't be done easily is would be a difficult thing for an emperor, an all-powerful emperor to, you know, uh, to put out there, even, even mm-hmm. if he won. He might lose. He might be overthrown. Mm-hmm. And in any case, he also might have lost if he'd done that. Remember, it's not just the Spaniards, uh, whom I will say were quite formidable militarily. I mean, they did very well in every battle. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to say that their technological capacity won the thing, but it's undeniable that it's there. Um, technology broadly defined communication forces were a big deal. Um, but, yeah. you know, um, crossbows and, 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 you know, steel swords and those kinds of things, uh, gunpowder. Uh, most of the things, you know, gunpowder is Chinese originally. Uh, a lot of the weapons and ships were refined through North African and, and Arabs and others. So, I mean, they're not just European in origin, but nevertheless, they 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 did, I think, clearly have that advantage. That's what's going on. But the thing is, Moctezuma, what do you do? And he ends up doing nothing. Now, I don't think because he was a coward, but I think in some way there was very few options before him and none of those options were good. Mm-hmm. And the one the one option was wait and see. He wasn't certain what their intentions were going to be, but it would stands to reason that maybe they would extract a ransom and go away. Maybe that yeah. would um, Of course, he didn't know. We know now that the Spaniards absolutely intended to stay, but he didn't know that then. Yeah, well, and I thinking about some of the people in Florida, the different cultures that were in Florida and how, you know, maybe they initially had pretty violent interactions with DeSoto. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once the Spanish kind of try to, you know, set up missions and things there, indigenous leaders essentially get propped up by mm-hmm. Spanish colonial officials. So I, I wasn't sure if maybe he was thinking maybe that some sort of alliance could be established with these new people that showed up. Mm -hmm. I, I, it sounds like we have similar conversations with our students because what you're describing, of course, took place in so many other contact zones throughout North America. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, the indigenous people that were taking part in this moment had any understanding of the colonialism that was to come that, I mean, they didn't, Mm. they didn't know that. I mean, I think what you said really captures it. The enemy of my enemy is somebody that I want to, you know, establish a relationship with. And in these environments where different polities are coming together at different times to kind of put forward or try to accomplish things. For their people, when Europeans arrive, it's just like, okay, <laughs> well, here's another group that we can maybe create some sort of relationship with. They have things that can benefit us. Why not see how it works? So I just wasn't sure if maybe Montezuma was thinking that an alliance mm-hmm. maybe was possible as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's absolutely uh, very likely, in fact, that that mm-hmm. was going on. You know, you know, what the first thing that people often think is, is you know, after assessing are these people a threat? The next thing is, how can I use this to my advantage? Right. right? And many people use the Spanish presence to their advantage, uh, both during the conquest and after. So, yeah, I mean, that's probably what he was thinking. In, in retrospect, it's easy to say, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. But <laughs> right. go ahead and try for yourself. What, 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 what would you have done? You know, um, it's a very complicated situation. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I see what you're saying. If you know that you can't immediately or easily overthrow these people, probably not so much just because of the however many hundreds of Spanish that were there, but but also because of the tens of thousands of other indigenous allies that they brought with them. Right. That's exactly right. You know, uh, very complicated. And the other thing is that they weren't yet threatening. I mean, there was a subtext of threat, I think, to this. But the Spanish were not. They didn't come in with their you know cannons blazing. They came in uh, you know with their swords sheathed, and they met Moctezuma. And at this point, it was a diplomatic thing. So um, there wasn't any violence yet. 
Um, there was to be eventually, but at this point, as you say, wait and see and uh, see if we can turn this to our advantage. So what wound up happening then? Because it wound up not being an advantage. So that's right. What, what right, right. Yeah. So what happened was that, that the Spanish kind of just stuck around. You know, they say Franklin said, you know, fishing guests stink up for three days. Uh, mm. They, you know, the, the Spanish were fed and they just kind of stayed. You know, they were trying to figure out their move, too, because they weren't in a position to just, you know, rise up and win militarily either. They, they didn't know what their capacity was either. That they were in a great deal of danger, you know, occup- in the center of this empire as kind of unwanted people. That's, you know, <laughs> they were trying to deal with that as well. Um, but what happens is eventually the Cortes gets word that uh, Governor Velasquez of Cuba had sent uh, Panfilo de Narvaez, later uh, goes to Florida, by the way, uh, to basically arrest Cortes and bring him back for you know, treason. Right? And uh, so Cortes has to deal with that. And there are conflicting accounts of this, but probably about this point, he puts Moctezuma in chains. Okay. When he doesn't want to leave Moctezuma free uh, when he leaves the city. So they put him in chains. And I guess the, the idea is to kind of use him as a puppet as much as they can, uh, mm-hmm. keeping him indoors and stuff. And then he, he leaves for the coast and he leaves his second in command, which is a guy named Pedro de Alvarado, who, uh, even by the standards of conquistadors, turned out to be a truly awful person. And those are pretty low standards to begin. Yes, um, wow. And he goes to the coast and yeah, and Tez ends up persuading boys to join him fighting. You know, some of the accounts, they say he burned, the, he didn't burn the ships, he scuttled them. And so he comes back with reinforcements. And when he gets back, he finds that all hell is broken loose. And the cause of this was that Alvarado had ordered the Aztec nobility to be slaughtered preemptively during a ritual dance, uh, just preemptively. And that, of course, sent the city in, to rise up and at that point, they were trying to kill them. Uh, so this is in 1520. This was known as the, the sad night or the noche triste in Spanish you know, historiography. But they get chased out of the city and I think something like half the Spaniards, or maybe a little less than that, were captured. Uh, and they were dragged up the temple and they could see them being sacrificed as they were trying to escape the city. And they almost were wiped out dur- during this event. Uh, they survived and they regrouped outside the city. But this almost was the end of the Spaniards. Um, so after that, while they're regrouping, it's important to mention that it was during Cortez. It was it was the, the Narvaez expedition brought smallpox to uh, to New Spain to Mexico, mm-hmm. and which had arrived only in fifteen eighteen in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And somebody we don't know who, but somebody in that group introduced smallpox to Tenochtitlan, mm-hmm. and it's an island city. And Cortez was, oh, he was many things, but he wasn't stupid, right? And he attempted to barricade the city you know, to cut off food and fresh water. There was an aqueduct that brought. A uh, double channel aqueduct. In fact, they brought fresh water from Chapultepec. So to cut that stuff off and kind of starve them out. And he wanted to, he wanted them to surrender peacefully is what he wanted. But during this smallpox is just begins to rage in the city and what, and what must have been just one of the most awful sites in history. You know, smallpox is a dreadful, dreadful disease. And it was in Europe too. You know, I, sometimes students will ask me, you know, well, were Spaniards immune to smallpox? Absolutely not. Yeah. Smallpox was a scourge in European history, but uh, the Spaniards did have differential immunity, we call it, that they had greater immunity to it, whereas, of course, nobody in the Western Hemisphere did. And Mm. it just caused just untold amounts of destruction in the city. And yet they did not surrender. They didn't surrender. Okay. Um, In the end, um, you know, Cortez has to destroy the entire city, which he didn't want to do. He wanted to take it as a prize. Uh, And ultimately, in the end, he does capture and and the last, uh, I should mention that Moctezuma died during the Notre Dame stew. There's conflicting accounts as to what happened to him. Yeah. Uh, which power went to a guy named Quitlawak and then to Quatemoc, who was captured and who 
surrendered to Cortez and Cortez later treacherously um, executes him in Central America. But uh, he was the last emperor of the Mexica, Guatemala, not the last leader. Do we know what happens to Marina? Yeah. So um, she ended up marrying a Spaniard named uh, Jaramillo. She got Lucky gal. Yeah. <laughs> um, she gave birth to Cortez's son, Martin, but married Jaramillo and got an encomienda and would have probably gone on to have a pretty swanky life, but she ultimately did die of disease. But another example that, you know, had she survived, uh, the conquest would have turned her from a slave to a very wealthy person. So there's another example of somebody taking a situation and through agency, turning it to their advantage. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. So even though the, the city falls, I mean, you made the excellent point at the beginning that, you know, this this culture Continue, the language continues. All of these things continue today. Right. So can you briefly kind of describe some of the uh, the aftermath and why there is this continuance? Yeah, okay. So that's a big question. But a I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but a very good one. Um, so, you know, the con- so the war happened. We call it the Mexica Spanish War, really. Uh, we don't, we try not to use the word conquest because that had all kinds of legal implications among Spaniards, Certainly. including the implication of reclaiming something that once belonged to you, which you can't argue that here. So mm-hmm. it doesn't even apply according to their own understanding of the law. But the sun came up the next day, you know, and uh, life went on. The, the defeat of the Mexica was definitive. Okay. There were no major uprisings uh, in central Mexico. It was definitive. It was traumatic, but it wasn't apocalyptic. Mm. So it inflicted a great deal of harm and trauma. And you can read the indigenous accounts. I mean, they're they're sad. You know, people were acutely aware of what was being lost. And and there's trauma that's very obvious in the accounts. But life did go on. And um, the city itself, uh, Cortez decided to build Mexico City, what they first called Mexico Temistitlan, uh, on top of the ruins, and in fact, out of the ruins of of uh, Tenochtitlan for political purposes. They wanted to take that political center and just make it their own. Sure. And t- today you can see the Metropolitan Cathedral in Mexico City rises right over the ruins of the, the main temple. It's right there, you know, mm-hmm. one religious temple to, to another sure. um, on pretty clear parallels. Um, but one of the things that's been underappreciated is that uh, the Spaniards themselves uh, for one, they spent decades trying to justify what to, what they just did because there was no theological or moral justification for it. It was legal by absolutely any imagination uh, under their own understanding of the law. So they had to justify that. But their other understanding was that people collectively operating for mutual benefit, or what they called republics, were allowed to live as they saw fit. So Tenochtitlan, as a political entity, it existed. It had its, It was sort of transformed into a Spanish-style town council, but it operated within Mexico City. It had its own jurisdiction and did all kinds of things of importance. Uh, there are accounts of the lineage of, of rulers through the uh, through Tenochtitlan that endures well into the colonial period. That was still there. You know, uh, the Nawas are there all along. Uh, you know, so the, the political structure of the empire fractured, but its constituent parts were still there. One of the great scholars of the colonial period, uh, James Lockhart, uh, wrote that over 300 years of, of Spanish rule, no, but no one who lived to old age uh, ever saw the world tra- change beyond something they would recognize. In other words, change came slowly. Uh, it came. It absolutely came. Um, but it didn't happen all at once. And the Spanish, other than, you know, with regards to religious things and practices they considered contrary to divine or moral law, you know, cannibalism and 
and polygamy and those kinds of things, they didn't really make an attempt to change how people live their lives. And so for the most part, in a lot of ways, uh, there's more continuity than change, at least at the local level. That's an interesting point. I just can't stop. I mean, the pair of so many parallels and comparisons, but I don't want to I don't want to bore people with all of that. Um, one question that I had that I hesitate to ask because mm-hmm. I don't know, because I think it's, it's so much part of the, the myth mm-hmm. that exists around these people. And it kind of, I don't mean to unnecessarily sensationalize, mm-hmm. um, their culture, but you did mention the fact that they were sacrificing the Spaniards. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the question mm-hmm. that people always have about the Aztecs yeah. is this like ripping out hearts from chests yeah. and stuff. So maybe if for no other reason than to just kind of set the record straight, would you like to explain that to us? Uh, I, I will. And I'll also use this as an opportunity to speak a bit about what else was going on, you know, besides sacrifice. So perfect. A sacrifice is deeply rooted in Mesoamerican culture, um, not just you know, the whole removal of the heart thing, but sacrificing blood, which was considered to be a precious fluid. It was symbolic of, of life, of something that made a growth. And a little, you know, auto-sacrifice people would prick their fingers with a cactus barb or a stingray barb down on the coast and do that kind of, say a little prayer, a kind of incantation. Uh, that kind of thing was, was typical. There's evidence of sacrifice at many different uh, polities that existed long before the Aztecs of human sacrifice. Um, Teotihuacan, the great classic era site, um, which the, the, the Mexica believed their gods descended from. And they didn't know who built it, and we still don't exactly, but um, they took pilgrimages there. There's more more sacrificial victims have been found in Teotihuacan than at Tenochtitlan. So it absolutely happened. Um, it seems that the there was an increase in sacrifice by the Mexica for largely political, but also um spiritual reasons. The Spanish greatly played up human sacrifice. Remember I mentioned before they were searching for justifications? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, these violations of what were considered to be divine law were one of the ways they could try to do that. It wasn't a great argument because it still doesn't technically justify what they did. But, you know, you know these accounts of 10,000 people being sacrificed, that, that didn't happen. Okay, it didn't happen. Uh, sacrifice was usually captives from war. Uh, one of the ways that warriors distinguished themselves was not killing people in battle, but capturing them and bringing them back ceremonially. And then oftentimes those people were sacrificed on the temple. There were priests. They removed the heart. Um, they you know, oftentimes put it into sort of an offering or they would use incense and other things. Um, and you would have seen it. They, white temples, red blood. Uh, mm-hmm. You would have seen it. Uh, one of the architects, or we talk about him as an architect of this empire, was a kind of a grand vizier named uh, Tlacayalel. Who was never Wei Tlatawani himself, but he was, he advised, he was related to several emperors and he advised them. And he seems to have understood the political power of taking this religious practice and wedding it to the state. So in addition to taking Huitzilopochtli, their patron god, and putting him up on the temple with the rain god Tlaloc, uh, that he emphasized the importance of carrying out sacrifice by the state, which takes an important spiritual practice, which was, you know, life or death creates life creates balance in life and death, but it's also, it's a threat also, you know, they do it on the top of the temple, can be seen from everywhere. Uh, there's a, there's a threat in that as well. I mean, you know, when the Spaniards are being sacrificed, they didn't wait until later. They wanted them to see what they were doing when they're fleeing the city. So it, mm-hmm. clearly there's, there's that political aspect of violence to it. So it existed. It was not part of most people's daily lives. It didn't happen every day. Most people probably never thought about it. It's not it was, it's much more important to us and our, and tells us more about us, I think, our fascination with it than it was to them. Um, you know, we play it up 
But the other thing about, you know, just to sort of wrap things up here is that the Mexica were no more violent than anyone else. You know, they weren't more violent than Europeans. Um, people say, well, did Europeans commit sacrifice? Well, think about this. One of the descendants of Nezahualcoyol was a guy named uh, Don Carlos Omitochtin of Texcoco. And when he was suspected of doing, carrying on banned religious practices, the Archbishop Zumarga had him burned at the stake. What is burning at the stake? Well, it's an act that satisfies a religious you know, punishment for sin, and it also is a threat. You know, mm-hmm. it's not that different, right? It's mm-hmm. not that different at, at all. And, and outside of that, the Mexica and Nahuas in general were poets. They were very oral culture. Um, well, we have like, some colonial accounts of their poetry, and it's what you'd expect. It's about life and, and death and sex and all the stuff that poets write about, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, they were tremendous architects. They were engineers. Um, they had a sense of humor. And that we sometimes forget, but some of the stuff they wrote is actually quite funny, even you know, to us. And those are the things that were influenced people's daily lives. You know, sacrifice. Uh, I think that's more about us than it is about them. But mm-hmm. uh, yes, it happened. But no, it did not define who they were. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. You've referred throughout uh, to the this people as the Mexica. How do we mm-hmm. get? How do we come up with the Aztecs then? Is that just kind of what the Spanish called them? And we've taken that along with all of our stories mm-hmm. of sacrifice. Is that what happened? Yeah. If memory serves, I think it comes from some of the accounts that talk about links to a place called Aslan in the north, the people who descended from there. Mm-hmm. It was applied much later. Um, I, I don't recall exactly when. I think in the 18th century, um, oh, maybe okay. after that. But, but it was used as a lump term to describe later on, and it could only make sense later on to apply it if you don't understand the complexity of that time and that place. Sure. Um, but it, but it's, it's, it's a much more recent term that wasn't used by anybody at the time. Nobody ever identified as Aztecs. The Spanish didn't really uh, use that term. They, the Mexicanos <laughs> you know, sure. is one of the terms they use, but, uh, um, but, it, but it's a much later thing. Well, it definitely stuck. And because uh, I've been asking, I don't know if you've been watching the basketball, but you know, the San Diego state Aztecs mm-hmm. went, you know, all the way. And I just kept asking and nobody could answer me. Why are they the Aztecs? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Well, when you think about how we name teams and particularly that well, we take Native American names, right? What, what do we, you know, why do they choose them? I know. I know. And I think maybe somebody made a, a point to me about that. Like, weren't the Aztecs bloodthirsty warriors? And I was like, I don't know if all of that's true. Please stay tuned for a podcast, but. <laughs> Um, I guess I was just kind of, you know, really focused on the geographical component, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, maybe San Diego, the folks at San Diego state are, you know, are aware of this diaspora that you talked about at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they meant. Maybe. And there are absolutely not what speakers in, in Southern California, many, many of them. So there you go. Maybe, maybe that explains it all. And here I was just yeah. thinking the worst. No, you, but your instincts are probably right. right? <laughs> it, it, it's probably, it comes from that idea of them, oh, bloodthirsty warriors, you know, um, <laughs> all the other kind of stuff. I mean, they were capable warriors. I don't know if they were bloodthirsty, but they were certainly yeah. warriors. Capable. That's good. That's a good, good note to end on. Is um, But before we go, is there anything about the Mexica or Aztec people that I haven't asked you that you really think people need to know about? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, I could probably talk about them for the next several hours if you if you'd like to. Um, but what I would say is uh, the most important thing is to is to think about you know as historians we have to have empathy 
right? Mm-hmm. And to try and think about that, and in order to develop that, you need to know something about people that you're looking at. And sure. look up, and you know, we have a lot of indigenous language documents. Um, we have a lot of counts. There's a lot of great scholarship on this. Almost every aspect of their culture, we know more about them probably than any indigenous peoples. Uh, in part because uh, they did. I'm really pick up. jealous about that, by the way, that you have so many indigenous authored documents. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people did pick up, you know, writing in sort of the European script, but in native languages. And that, that happened most fully, really, in, in central Mexico, more than anywhere mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And as a result, you know, it's not perfect, but we do know quite a bit about them. And they're really interesting people. And if you have any kind of like, you know, humanist in you, you you're just fascinated by people and what's different and what's similar. And in a lot of ways, there's probably more in common than, than difference. But yeah, I'd encourage people to go read and look up and see what scholars have been doing. There's just, there's a lot of good stuff. But one book I would recommend if people want to pick up something that they don't know much would Please. be uh, Camilla Townsend's book, Aztecs. Uh, I think it's called uh, Fifth Son, actually, a, history, a New History of the Aztecs. And one thing she does, and this is the way scholars are going, is she she moves the conquest to the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of begin to follow this story from, you know, largely through, through gender. Women are very central in, in this book. And follow it through from you know, origins to the conquest and what happens later and, and, you know, begin to think, well, okay, well, <laughs> that, that story didn't really have an end, did it? And of course, right. as I mentioned before, there's, uh, you know, a lot of a different indigenous groups. There's something like 15 different indigenous groups in Mexico alone that have more than a hundred thousand speakers of their language. And uh, a lot of people don't know that, but, yeah. um, there's, they're still around. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Dr. Woolley. Well, thank you so much for your time today, and I will speak with you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak about this. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please stay tuned for more details on our third season, which will drop next year. In the meantime, please share this podcast with other history lovers in your life. We also encourage you to go back through our catalog to listen to previous episodes you may have missed or re-listen. We have enjoyed creating this podcast, and I want to extend a sincere thank you to you for listening and also want to ask for your help. Please give us a five-star rating. It will help us bring greater awareness to the awesomeness of history and UNCP's history faculty. Until next time, be merry and stay safe. Speak with you soon.